You're now listening to Conversations on Genocide, a podcast series presented by Genocide Watch. Genocide Watch exists to protect, prevent, stop, and punish genocide and other forms of mass murder. We seek to raise awareness and influence public policy concerning potential and actual genocide. Our purpose is to build an international movement to prevent and stop genocide. Um, Hi, everyone. Welcome to Conversations on Genocide, a podcast dedicated to exploring issues surrounding mass atrocities um, presented by Genocide Watch. Today, we will be focusing on the question of how to engage with an audience on social issues that feel too distant for meaningful action. With us today, we welcome Dr. Jeffrey Muir from the University of St. Andrews. Hi, Dr. Muir. Thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, Could you start our listeners off with telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, thank you. And thank you for the invitation. Um, So I'm the lecturer on collective violence at the University of St. Andrews, and I really focus on on the ground interactions between groups. And so my interest in expressions of violence moves from the very, very small, say from street gangs and, and kind of urban violence to the very, very large, like the topics that we'll discuss today at the level of genocide. Um, Moreover, I'm very interested in the interaction between the material and the psychological. Um, My own work, and perhaps we'll discuss this in the conversation um, today, is very focused in psychoanalysis and group psychology and understanding the psychological motivations as well as the material motivations for violence. I think is extremely important, not only to understand violence in the past, but to be able to ameliorate violence in the present and to prevent violence in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, it sounds like you have a really interesting job. Um, I'm personally a psychology major, so that's really exciting. Um, so thank you. Um, and we are really excited to have you here today. So our first question today is, um, why is it that despite the striking scale of human sufferings that occur in genocides, there's little outrage from international communities until it's too late? Well, and I think that you asked a really important question, which is the too late part. I mean, I think there's often outrage um, quite early on. I think there's often outrage um, in many quarters, whether it's activists like people associated with Genocide Watch or political activists on the ground or political allies that have associations with people on the ground. So there is often outrage present. The question becomes how much outrage is necessary to either quell violence once it's begun or to prevent violence from getting started in the first place. And I think here we have to ask an interesting question about what's the level of violence? Like, how is it too late? Is it violence in the street? Is it the kind of violence that we're seeing in, say, Iran today? And we're having a conversation at the end of September in 2022. And so there have been ongoing confrontations between protesters and security services in Iran. What level of violence is that? You know, and we can think of all kinds of, and perhaps as we go through the conversation today, we can think of all kinds of different conflicts, whether it's early days in Darfur or whether we're talking about conflict, say, in Mali or in the Sahel in, in North Africa. When does it become the beginning of genocide? And I think this is a, a question that perplexes social scientists. It's, it per- perplexes Um, analysts of conflict, it perplexes the people on the ground. Mm -hmm. When is the discourse of extreme violence transformed into the enactment of extreme violence? 
Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that may be part of the question that we have to ask. When is it too late? Maybe we don't know when it's too late, but perhaps part of the question is maybe we can't allow violence to happen in the first place, that there needs to be an understanding of what role political violence plays. Mm-hmm. And again, to use Iran as an example here, because it isn't a genocide, right? People are taking to the streets because they feel like they have no other mode of expression for their politics. Um, and there, there is violent repression by the state. Mm-hmm. When we talk about some of the other conflicts this afternoon or in the course of this, this conversation, um, what we'll see is violence playing a very different role. So maybe part of the question we have to ask is not whether there's violence, but what kind of violence. To mm-hmm. start thinking about qualities in the plural of violences also in the plural and their relationship then to the enactment of genocide. Yeah, that completely makes sense and actually brings us really well to our next question, um, kind of relating to the difference between state um, state responses and individual responses. So um, for democratic states to take action in theory, their domestic audience should play a role in deciding what the most pressing issues of the day are. Um, However, it's also a fact that um, state actions against genocide and other sovereign states entail foreign policy with limited direct stakes or benefits for themselves, as well as limited legitimacy in actions. In your opinion, and I know this kind of relates back to what you were just saying, um, what is the role of the individual in genocide intervention, prevention, and recognition? Do you believe that governments are more likely to take or escalate actions if their citizens are pushing for greater efforts against genocide? Yes, and and uh, this is an extremely important question, and I think it it has two very important component parts. I mean, I, I think the first is that question of, about democracy mm-hmm. and how does democracy work. And I think I, I want to come back to that in in just a moment. And that second question is um, how to get a state involved, like what becomes the level of involvement and why. And I think here it's interesting for us to think of the relationship between the polity and the state in both directions. Because Mm -hmm. on the one hand, we can see the way in which individuals can make a political situation resonate with the state. Right? Mm -hmm. This is a groundswell. People say, look, we have to do something here. Uh, This is extremely important. Conversely, or or perhaps just obversely, the Mm -hmm. state could say, look, it's not just the state's abstract interest in foreign policy here. This is actually democratic values. And perhaps in this case, we actually see some of this two-way interaction in democracy with the support that the Western allies have been giving Ukraine. That it's understood that this isn't just a fight about the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. It is also a fight about the concept of Western democracy. And I think here... Part of what you're you're asking in this question, right, is how to get democratic polities to see foreign problems as affecting them. Mm-hmm. On the one level, I think it's, you know, we have to be able to see the victims of violence as, as human beings, as people like us. Mm-hmm. How do we connect people that way? The other way is, I think, to connect to whatever the values of the polity may be. So to think in particular, Western, European, transatlantic countries see themselves as the protectors and also the progenitors of Mm -hmm. modern democracy. And if modern democracy is at stake in Ukraine, then there's an obligation both of the polity and of the state to defend it. I think what becomes so difficult 
is when, and I think this is important to remember, and I'm sure we'll talk about the Holocaust more in our conversation here, but it is important to remember that in the 1930s, Britain and France, but particularly Britain, did mm -hmm. not let in that many Jews, right? And the United States was also not particularly good at letting in Jews who were seeking refuge from the Nazi regime. In the aftermath of the Second World War, after it's become clear that the Holocaust was all about destroying the Jewry of Europe and the Roma of Europe, well, then suddenly those democracies said, well, look, we, see, we were taking people in from the very beginning. And especially, say, in Britain, this conversation about the, the kinder transport, taking in children before the outbreak of the Second World War, the, that's laudable. But it's important to remember that just as sometimes these struggles in the present are cast as immigration problems, mm -hmm. even in the face of the Second World War, even in the face of atrocities against Jews prior to the invasion of Poland in 1939, mm -hmm. democracies were actually quite slow to defend those Jewish populations seeking refuge mm -hmm. in Eastern Europe. Yeah, so I, I guess what I'm hearing is that um, the individual and how they react does play heavily into how um, policies, especially in democratic states, do react. Um, and that's really interesting and important to know. Um, and in the line of those questions, are there any ways for activists to reduce the um, indifference from local communities? And has there been any research that suggests that awareness campaigns through media or formal education on the topic, um, building up social con consequences and interests in practical actions on these issues? Yes. And, and I think here, this may not, again, we'll relate it back to genocide. But here mm -hmm. I want to draw an example that isn't related to genocide, but it will be connected, that is to see the ways that um, see, those that want to, to open immigration, particularly for asylum seekers, have been so successful in articulating the idea that people are not illegal, mm -hmm. that, that we have to talk about the human being um, and the human being circumstances in which she finds herself needing to cross a border, in which he finds himself needing to cross a border mm -hmm. for refuge from oppression, from repression from mm -hmm. uh, persecution. This uh, effort right, to really draw out the humanity of the migrant, to draw out the humanity of the asylum seeker, I think is really quite key. Because one of the things that becomes so important, uh, both in the execution of genocide on the ground in a specific context, but mm -hmm. also to prevent, say, third parties from intervening is the dehumanization of the, say, the target mm. population of the violence. And then somehow, if it's understood that the that target population, maybe, I, I don't want to, you know, the, the genocidiers will say that they are deserving. I, I don't want to use that language. But I think mm -hmm. somehow third parties may see, oh, well, you know, that's a conflict that's ages old. Well, maybe but probably not. And one of the examples I'd like to give is, say, in the Bosnian War, the notion that somehow Serbs have always hated Croats or Serbs have always hated Bosniaks. I mean, that's actually not the case. I mean, for the most part, Serbs and, Bosn uh, Serbs and Croats really didn't have much to do with one another because of their imperial placements. The Serbs largely being in the Ottoman space and Croats largely being in the Austro-Hungarian space. They, they didn't have much contact with one another 
or you know, they had contact, they share a language, but politically speaking, they weren't rivals until they find themselves in the same Yugoslavian state. The same way that that becomes maybe a myth about connecting Serb violence against Ottoman invaders in the Battle of Kosovo in 1389, that Milosevic is somehow able to connect that in 1989, 600 years later, it's not the same conflict. But I think what happens often is, and we've seen this, say, in Rwanda, where the West was told, oh, well, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. You know, Tutsis and Hutu have been fighting each other for eons. No, Tutsis and Hutus didn't compete with one another for eons. The Belgian colonial powers made a rigid distinction between those two, but those two groups had previously largely been, say, distinctions between whether you were a, a cattle herder or whether you were a agricultural farmer. It wasn't an ethnicity. It was more of an, not, I don't want to say occupation, but it was much more of a kinship network about what people did. The mm-hmm. ability to somehow weave a narrative that there's nothing that can be done because mm-hmm. of history or because say, Yazidis don't practice the correct kind of Islam and therefore that's why they're a target of ISIS. It's incumbent upon individuals to explore those myths, to trouble those myths, and to try to say to states, look, that's not that's actually not what's going on on the ground. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like that um, at the individual level, um, people also need to be challenging kind of what they're being fed in the media. Um, and that kind of answers our last question. If there's anything else just on the individual level that for people who aren't activists, um, besides kind of challenging what you're seeing in your everyday, um, is there anything else that individuals can do um, to reduce their own indifference? Yeah, well, and, and here maybe, I know I we, we have a lot of other things to discuss. Mm-hmm. But maybe this is a little bit too, uh, I don't know, optimistic, a little bit too um, idealistic. But for, for me personally, you know, the polity is constructed of individuals. I mean, the, the polity, it is a collective, to be sure. And co- collectivities have energy onto themselves. They have energy that often is far greater, resources that are far greater than the sum of their individual parts that, that constitute, that, that make them. But that polity isn't an abstract. It is the constitutive people that construct it. And here, for each of us, to think about our own responsibility, but for us to also think about our own openness. Mm-hmm. So here, for us to think about, say, whether it's from the, the French social theorist, uh, Emmanuel Levinas, or, or from others, the idea, Donna, or- Donna Orange, the psychoanalytic um, social theorist, to mm-hmm. think about whether we are open. How do we react to the other? How do we think about the other? How do we see not just the humanity in the mm-hmm. other, but how, as, as the French social theorist Julia Kristeva suggested, how do we see not ourselves in the other? Because Kristeva suggests that this is an act of profound narcissism. I'm just looking for myself. Mm-hmm. But conversely, how do I see the other in myself? Mm-hmm. How can I connect with them as a human being, not on my terms, but on their terms, on her terms? And for mm-hmm. each of us to think about what would I do in those circumstances? How would I feel in those circumstances? What mm-hmm. would I do for my family? 
if I would do anything for my family, then I might be able to understand the ways that someone else might do anything for their family, including traveling thousands of miles, risking borders, risking the use of coyotes and other people to get my children to safety. If we can see the humanity in that, Mm. then it helps to shape the politics of it. Because if we can tell our politicians and ergo tell the state that these are people, Mm -hmm. then individuals can do a lot. But I think in in some sense, not just doing a lot out there in the polity, but starting with ourselves, inside ourselves. How do we make that human connection? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important to emphasize individual responsibilities because I think um, at mass atrocities at big levels, it kind of feels like, what can I do? And what is my role? So um, thank you for emphasizing that. Um, Because communication is a two-way street, um, let's move on to state responses. We've seen states employ all kinds of countermeasures to condemn other state actions that constitute genocide, like sanctions, conditional trading, just to name a few. Excluding direct military assault on the actors perpetrating genocidal acts, what kind of governmental action do you think has been the most effective in signaling robust commitment to condemning genocidal acts? Well, and and here it may seem weak, but I would actually say sanctions are really quite important. And sanctions, not just at an economic level, although that's usually the format by which sanctions take place. But I think often what is most desired by Um, genocidal actors is recognition. And I think the denial of international recognition becomes extremely important. So if we think about when genocide often occurs, it is frequently about not a stable state trying to do something, but rather an internal political fight that is attempting to capture the state. So we see some kind of political movement internally that's going to redefine, say, who is in the state. Likewise, ethnic transformations within the state where, perhaps we can talk about this separately, but where, say, the um, Committee for Unification, and for, sorry, the Committee for Union and Progress in Turkey, right, the most radical faction of the Young Turks, is engaged simultaneously in an act of ethnic Turkification of the Ottoman Empire that then requires the exclusion of other peoples who can't be Turkish, like Armenians. So we can actually see some of the roots of the Armenian genocide in a political struggle inside the Ottoman Empire in its process of Turkification. And if we see other states saying, look, you can take over the government, but we're, we're not going to recognize you. This is, this is a problem. You're, you're trying to come to state power through the vehicle of ethnic cleansing, as happened in Kosovo, right? Through where the West said to the Serbs, look, you can try to cleanse Kosovo of, of um, Albanian speakers, but we are not going to recognize that process. Thinking about the same way that the West won't recognize the uh, votes that have just taken place in the four regions in Ukraine um, that are supposed to, quote unquote, legitimize uh, Russian annexation of those regions, the West has said, no, we won't do that. And I see that as a form of sanction. This lack of recognition is vitally powerful because often the genocidaires are trying to capture a state, their own state, purify a state, expand a state. But what they want is often 
a state. Maybe we can talk about those that are not, like ISIS, but most genocidaires are about trying to redefine who belongs in the polity, and they must expel, in their own minds, right? They must expel certain elements within the polity to make this new state, quote unquote, pure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and thank you so much for um, sharing that with us. Um, and talking a little bit more about different genocides, genocide recognition. Um, despite the fact that genocides are ongoing and more common than portrayed in popular narrative, it remains the case that there's significantly less awareness or education on any other genocide compared to the Holocaust. What do you think um, causes governments and public reactions to differ across genocides? And how do you think that the public's reaction differs depending on the race and ethnicity of the perpetrator or the victim? Oh, this is, I think, a really important question. And I, I think part of, part of this is also um, perhaps a, a, a Western problem of being unfamiliar with the, um, let's say, the ethnic identities or the multiplicity of ethnic identities elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and some of that, I think, actually has to do with colonialism in the sense that a lot of Western powers you know, decided that they knew who was where, right, or decided that they understood where certain groups belong and where they, they don't belong. Mm -hmm. I think part of the, the it, this may be much more central to my own research. So I, I say this from my own perspective. Perhaps mm -hmm. there would be those that would disagree with me. But as I stated at the outset, I mean, my research is very focused on group identities and not just, say, the enactment or the expression of the group identity once it's settled, but actually thinking about group identity as being dynamic. And if we actually take a dynamic standpoint, that there isn't just a group that is always, that that group that isn't always may not always have been there either. And what I mean to say about that is we can actually think about groups that are forming and reforming, that are melding with other groups, that dissipate with other groups, that some groups join other groups and they evaporate. Other groups may take other groups' names. It's a very dynamic process. The dynamism of that process may actually incorporate violence, that the two groups very similar to each other may actually be more violent toward one another, mm -hmm. perhaps Serbs and Croats, Serbs and Bosnians, because they're so close, right? The amount of energy it takes to keep the two groups separate, right, is expressed through this tremendous amount of violence. Perhaps again, Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda, this incredible amount of energy to actually make two separate groups rather than the groups falling in okay. to one another. I think part of the issue here from, from an analytic standpoint is to understand th this dynamic process. Um, I think all too often, and sometimes even people who are trying to do good, reify groups. And mm -hmm. so sometimes what we see is maybe politics, say for example, in, in Kenya or perhaps uh, in, in um, Uzbekistan, where um, groups that may uh, represent class, but identify in a sense as an ethnic group, 
may in fact not be an ethnic group, right? It may actually be a class basis. And what the struggle may be about is actually material resources or distribution. But the distribution may actually be based on clan networks that have names. And a lot of people in the West then see that as being an ethnicity. And it's not a bad way of thinking about it, but it's not the only way of thinking about it. And I think here, to understand this dynamic process and to let some of that dynamism go, even if it has an element of violence, may actually be important so as to not reify groups, you belong here and you belong there, to let that play out, but then by the same token, to not let that become genocide where people just throw up their hands and go, oh, I don't know who those people are, or those people have been fighting forever, you know, something like that. It, it's, perhaps it may sound like I'm trying to have it both ways, but I guess what I'm trying to, to express here is the one of the dangers um, of intervention is that the third party actually furthers the conflict through reification, either by reifying the groups themselves or by reifying the conflict, rather than seeing it as a dynamic event, which also allows for intervention. Yeah, um, I, I think it is also interesting then to kind of see the disparity between actions and responses towards genocide too. Um, for example, the U.S. State Department has formally recognized eight genocides between 1989 and 2022. Um, here at Genocide Watch, we would say there are many more. Um, but before and during these genocides, governments and organizations like the UN were well aware of these impending genocides. Um, for example, in Rwanda in, in Rwanda in 1994, Romeo Dallaire, leading the UN peacekeeping mission in Rwanda, was informed that the Hutu government had plans to slaughter the Tutsi people. With this information, he went both to the UN and the US informing them of these plans, yet they denied him any help. He was informed that there was nothing he could do. 800,000 um, lost lives later, Bill Clinton stood in the capital of Rwanda facing survivors who had just lost their families and promised never again, and acted surprised to the genocide despite having knowledge of the plans earlier. With vows like never again and insincere outrage, governments like the U.S. continuously allow genocides to happen. What do you think this juxtaposition between words and actions might signal to people? Yeah, I, I think that you raised so many important points in this question, and not the least of which is, what never again? Mm -hmm. I mean, never again, it's an extremely important phrase. And never again should there ever be the level of systematic, industrialized murder as had happened in the Holocaust, which is usually the referent to never again. Mm -hmm. But Bill Clinton said never again in, in Rwanda. And I think there he meant never again should there be that kind of violence in Rwanda, or perhaps to even say never again that kind of violence um, on the African continent. And of course, the the violence that happened in Rwanda, even though nearly as many people, actually more people have died in the, the ongoing conflict inside the Democratic Republic of Congo, it's different, right? It feels like a military operation. It feels like it's control of the state. It it looks like it's much more of a traditional war, uh, even if it's civil war, although there were many, or there had been many um, international proxy fighters there. But I do think it's an important question. What never again? Mm -hmm. Never again to stand by and let that rapid rate of acceleration of murder to to occur. I hope that that's what Bill Clinton meant. And I also hope that that's what the United States will continue to 
to stand by. I think part of the problem of what you're asking is not just what are states prepared to do, but what are states obliged to do when genocide becomes a legal category? And while law is extremely important, and categories, definitions are also extremely important. I think all too often states hide behind right, the relationship between definitions and legal obligations, right? One, the state is perhaps low to, I'll just say as a, something that's pending right now, the United States is very reluctant to declare uh, the Russian Federation a terrorist state because that definition has legalistic consequences that must be put into place once that declaration has been made. And similarly for many states, a declaration of genocide equally invokes a whole series of legal obligations that must be put into place. As important as that is, often states, and particularly say, state foreign ministries, or in this case, the US State Department, uh, are reluctant to actually limit their own opportunities, right? To limit their own channels, to limit their own negotiating tactics, to limit their own say, range of sanctions, which may actually be proscribed by law once that declaration is put into place. I think here th there is an important role, again, coming back to what the public can do, what individuals can do, which is to say, you know, Let's call this what it is. It's genocide. But if you aren't going to say it, then at least you need to act as if. And I think there's a powerful element here about as if. To say this is a genocide is extremely important. To get other states to recognize that something is a genocide is extremely important. I'm not trying to diminish that at all. Uh, and, and the historical... Uh, recognition of genocides are equally important. The, the demand that Turkey recognize the Armenian genocide as such has been an extremely important um, campaign. But in the present, in the moment when genocidal violence is taking place, um, I think activists likewise need to understand that there's a whole range of activities that can happen at different pressure points. And again, maybe, maybe this is the same notion of dynamism it's not one solution, right? It may actually be multiple fronts, if one will, um, that different actors can uh, can play or can, can enact on. But in the end, declaring a genocide for what it is, at some point that reckoning must take place. Mm -hmm. it, it seems like from what you're saying that often states manipulate different words to kind of fulfill certain agendas. And I appreciate you bringing it back to kind of individual responses because I feel like that's really important. Um, um, so let's move away from just state perpetrated genocides um, since I think it's also important to remember that not all perpetrators of genocide um, are state actors. Um, for example, it's widely recognized that, um, as you've mentioned, that ISIS members have committed genocide against the Yazidis in Iraq and Syria. Given that there was already significant military commitment against these actors from the international community and ongoing legal actions against ISIS fighters who have been charged with taking part in genocidal activities, does this signal a disparity in treatment between state-sponsored actors, uh, state-sponsored genocides and non-state-sponsored genocides? And how do you think this disparity might exist in public opinion? Well, I mean, I think this is a really important question um, on, on, on a number of fronts. Um, and, and not the least is 
of which is you asking this the the end question, which is how does it affect public opinion? Mm -hmm. um, I think that there is something very interesting for us, maybe going back to the previous question about legal um, frameworks and legal consequences. Uh, there are a lot of states that really wants to reinforce the notion of political sovereignty for the state in which the state can do whatever it deems necessary for its own security and protection. And right. I think there are plenty of people in the West who think about political sovereignty and actually accept that. Yes, that, that's fine. Um, I would say, you know, this has been challenged, particularly since the late 1990s, particularly since the, the genocide in Darfur in uh, Sudan, with this notion of, of an obligation to protect, the, that this idea of the obligation of the international community to not stand by, that there is a duty to protect regardless of who is involved in the conflict. I think this has been a tremendous um, development in foreign policy and in diplomatic relations. The idea that the world community has an obligation to people to prevent them from being the victims of genocide, regardless of the state's justification of violence is extremely important. I think that interestingly, the, the mobilization against ISIS uh, was one that perhaps was a little bit, I, I don't know, a little bit easier, more easily won in the West because it was then wedded to the, the American initiated, initiated, initiated um, global war on terror, right? The ISIS was understood as terrorists and terrorists, you know, they don't deserve to have political recognition. But I do think it's interesting for us to think about how state and non-state actors get qualified and who is actually making those qualifications. So if we think about, say, the Interwahamwe, right, which are these, you know, Hutu militia, who are largely responsible for the vast majority of murders in the Rwandan genocide back in the in the 1990s we could say right it's it's the hutu led state but it but it, in, in fact it really wasn't the state that was conducting the genocide it was a militia and likewise we could say in you know the world's most horrific auto genocide in in Kampuchea in Cambodia that the Khmer Rouge right are engaged in an attempt to capture the state. And they are, in, in a sense, they're successful in capturing the state. And it's then that they engage in this horrific autogenocide. But one could also say that their project wasn't about the state. It was a, it was a, it was a, a Khmer nationalist, rural, romantic uh, re-envisioning of who belongs in Kampuchea, who belongs in the Khmer state. And here, I think it was far too easy for, uh, particularly the United States, uh, because of the what had happened in Vietnam and what the United States had done in Cambodia, to simply say, that's the Cambodian state, we'll leave it alone, we're not going to intervene any longer because we were unsuccessful in interventions in Southeast Asia uh, for the past you know, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting for us to think about what that dividing line is. And, and likewise, one could say, you know, is it the Serbian state or were they Serbian militia in uh, Bosnia who were conducting right, the genocide against the Bosniak people? Was it the Serbian state in Kosovo? Actually, largely, yes. Right. In this case, it was largely the organs of the state, the state military 
But most of these genocides are not conducted uh, by the state. And here, maybe as a provocative question, is it worth troubling uh, even what had happened inside of Nazi Germany? Because while we can say these are the, organ the organs of the Nazi state, to be sure, uh, the fact that they are largely carried out by the Nazi party and therefore largely by the SS, which is a division of the Nazi party, not a division of the Heer, of the, the Weimark, the state army. Is it a state genocide? Now, to be sure, I'm not trying to excuse this in any way, shape or form, and, and my career is all, all about you know, countering anti-Semitic violence. Um, but I just want to say, when we think about this question about what's the dividing line between the state and non-state actors and who's involved in, um, say, a non-state genocide, I think it's also important for us to see the politics of that. Um, ISIS tried to create a state. If they had been successful, would we be talking about ISIS as a state genocide? against Yazidis, against other people, against Turkmen, against other people in the spaces that they controlled. The fact that they were unsuccessful means that they're a non-state actor. Um, the fact that the Khmer are successful means we, re we can regard that as a, you know, an auto-genocide or a, a state genocide against its own people. But the Khmer Rouge didn't see those people as its own people. Right? Mm -hmm. It saw them as other people. Um, and I think this is part of the issue about how do we, as observers or activists who want to get involved, how do we understand the categories that are being placed onto groups and how do we assess the appropriateness of those categories? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you raise a lot of really interesting questions, um, especially just throughout this podcast that I think would be really important to reflect on. So thank you so much. Um, and just our, our last question, since this has been a rather um, heavy subject to tackle. So saying thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, because you are so actively involved with all of these social issues, both personally and professionally, how do you protect your mental health from the weight of this? Oh, this is such an important question. and and. You know, it becomes something I think it's incumbent on, on all kinds of activists, uh, whether activists with your organization, with Genocide Watch, or other activists in the, in the field, to really think about this um, need to protect oneself, right? The, the need to be able to have a space to, to move forward in um, that doesn't mean you get burnt out, that doesn't mean that mm -hmm. you, you become so overwhelmed by what is quite overwhelming. Um, I, I have to say, in some regard, uh, part of this, I think, I'll, I'll, I'll take it from the psychoanalytic uh, theory that informs my own research, um, which is to see this as a kind of psychoanalytic um, engagement, um, mm -hmm. which is to not take on those burdens of others on oneself, for oneself, that they are other people's burdens that you hope to uh, ameliorate, to to offlift, to to save them, to protect them from those burdens, to to really offlift those burdens and and protect those people and to put them in safer places. One of the ways to do that is to not take that weight and to take it into oneself, right? To take mm -hmm. it onto oneself. Uh, one way of doing that is thinking about having a really a really wide social network, protective network around one's own self, that activists should have 
other places that they can displace those burdens as they take them off of the, the person who is the refugee, the person who is suffering, the person who is in motion. To relieve them of that burden doesn't require the activists to hold that burden, but to have a process by which the activists too can relieve themselves, himself, herself mm-hmm. of that burden. And also to, to not put that on a partner, to not put that on a lover, to not put that on a spouse, to not put that on one's children, right? to really have a robust network of people who say, you know what, I'm happy to take that from you and help you displace that. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a, a religious person, you know, maybe it's a rabbi, an imam, maybe it's a clergy member, uh, maybe it's a psychotherapist, maybe it's a, a colleague who isn't directly involved in the same work, but is an ally who is happy to kind of take that and let it go mm-hmm. and thinking about how that displacement can happen to take it off the immediate suffering, to relieve that person of that immediate suffering, and then to move it and to displace it and to displace it perhaps to someone who is really able to let it evaporate um, and mm-hmm. to dissipate. And, and in a way, right, taking out that poison, Taking out that pain, taking out that hurt, taking out that death, right, and alleviating it from the immediate sufferer and putting it out there where it disappears and mm-hmm. it evaporates into the ether. Um, I, th- I think it's, it's something important for us to think about how this stuff moves within society, how we can reproduce it um, if we don't think about how we think, how we speak. That it's important that we don't use, say, the language of those that are trying to reify other people, right? That we don't use the language that treats people as objects. Um, Mm -hmm. Even in our everyday speech, we really try to think of how can we make the space a more human, more sympathetic, more empathetic place. Um, Mm -hmm. I think this is... You know, it's one of the challenges, but I think, you know, through personal reflection in the everyday, what can I do to change my language? How can I judge my own psychic health? Um, I, th- I think this is one of the ways forward. And and also to say, you know, at some point to give oneself a break. I mean, maybe to take a holiday, to to not just take a holiday in the literal sense of it, but to, to say, you know, I've, I've done this for a few years. Now I'm going to step back. Mm-hmm. And then I can regenerate and then step forward again. And that's not a surrender. That's actually doing more for people who need assistance and relief. Mm-hmm. If you have more to give by stepping back every once in a while and recharging your batteries or whatever the metaphor may be, but to replenish yourself to be able to give more later rather than exhausting yourself. And then at some point not having anything to give at all. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us and for highlighting the importance of mental health, especially in advocates. Um, it sounds like you really need to be taking care of yourself before you can take care of other people. And I think that's really important. And just from personal research, I've seen that there is a, a lack of research looking into the mental health of advocates. So that's definitely something that's really important. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast. And we really appreciate it and all of your really insightful answers to our questions. So thank you so much. Um, um, yeah. You're most welcome. And it's been my pleasure. And, and thank you and, and Genocide Watch for, for all the work that, that you do and for bringing 
um, these topics, you know, into conversation for the public. So, so thank you very much. Of course, thank you. Once again, we'd like to thank Dr. Miro for speaking to us today, and Dr. Hayden Okoye for music. To learn more about current research and advocacy undertaken by Genocide Watch against mass atrocities, such as the ones mentioned in today's episode, please visit our website, genocidewatch.com.